Secure Enthusiasts Club podcast. This week, David Marks live from the Summer Jaguar Festival, JECpodcast.com. Hello, welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you. Hiya, hope you're well. And we're continuing our little mini-series on this podcast with a look back at some of the highlights from the Summer Jaguar Festival. On this episode, we'll be replaying my interview with Jaguar Enthusiast Club technical advisor of many years, David Marks. And in particular, we're looking back at 35 years since the launch of the Jaguar XJ40 series of XJ6s. We're looking at why they are such a good buy at the moment, why they're a brilliant Jaguar, and why they're an appreciating modern classic for the future. That's all to come on this episode. Also, a quick chat in a moment with Tony Merigold to relive some of the cars that the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust brought along for us to enjoy and for you to go and have rides in. It was a phenomenal sight to see that out at Bista Heritage the other week. Brilliant moment and a brilliant highlight of the Summer Jaguar Festival. And if you haven't quite got over that festival, or indeed if you missed out on it, there is another event you can be getting involved with very, very soon. Like, book it now, kind of soon. Uh, We're taking the JEC to Harewood Hill Climb. It is the longest hill climb track in the UK. It's up there in Yorkshire, just south of Harrogate, a beautiful part of the world. And it combines a car show with a kind of track day on the Harewood Hill Climb track there. So you can either come along with your Jaguar and give it a good old go and drive your cat as fast as you can up the Harewood Hill Climb, enjoy all of those historic corners, all of those technical sections, or if you're not into all of that, just come along, bring your picnic basket, come and watch everyone else hooliganing around (laughs) down in the valley, and you can just enjoy being around Jaguar friends. It's available to book now. It's at jec.org.uk forward slash events. You'll find it really easily on there. And it's a really good fun, cheap, simple day out for you and the family in the Jaguar. It's the JEC at Harewood and it takes place on Saturday the 21st of August. So not long to go now. Also open for booking is the Track Day. Uh, We are returning on the 5th of October to Castle Coombe, where we'll be combining a Track Day there with a car club meet as well. Novices welcome. You can book a full day or a part day. You can even take passengers out with you as well. And even ARDS instruction is available on the day. So if you fancy taking up racing and you need to get your ARDS license in order to do that, you can go and get some instruction, some training from our team at the track day again jc.org.uk forward slash events is where you need to go to get booked on that these fill up very very quickly there are a limited number of places obviously because we need to get enough track time for everyone during the day so don't miss out get on there quickly get your place secured just like you need to do with the salon privé tickets as well and you might remember we gave away the amazing money can't buy prize to the winner of the concourse de elegance e-type class at the summer jaguar festival uh, the winner of that will go on to compete at salon privé and also we'll have a big club display there as well it's the first weekend of september and you can book your tickets now via jc.org.uk or follow the links from there or friday spotlight to claim the discount code for club discounted tickets 
Now, one of the highlights of the Summer Jaguar Festival was, of course, the fact that we had cars out on track. And not only cars that you stood by and watched in the distance gunning it round the Bista Heritage Race Circuit, but cars you could actually go and experience and take a ride in. And they weren't any old cars either. These were the stars of the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust. These were the iconic vehicles from Jaguar's past. And the collections manager that looks after them all, Tony Merigold, was in the paddock and I caught up with him. Hi Wayne, uh, how now, are you? Talk us through some of the cars that we've got out on track there. Right, well we tried to get a bit of a mixture so there's something that meets uh, everyone's palette. Obviously first thing is it's 60 years of the launch of the E-Type. So we've got the first E-Type Roadster here, 77RW, which is the, the green one. So that'll be doing a few laps. Um, similarly, historically, we've got our own 1953 C-Type which was bought by an Italian called Mario Tadini to do the Mille Amelia. He uh, wasn't very successful in the Mille Amelia, but that was the start of its history. Uh, the other most famous car we've got here is the one that's literally just going onto track now. 120 fixed head coupe. We know it as the Montlhery coupe. That was the one that was driven around the Montlhery track in Paris at 100 miles an hour, 24 hours a day, for seven days and seven nights. With uh, Sterling Moss at the wheel. Sterling Moss, uh, Jack Fairman, and two others whose names momentarily escaped me were in there as well, so yes. Uh, they were a great pairing in the day, weren't they? Yeah, Sterling Moss, Jack Fairman did many Alpine rallies together in 120s, and that's an iconic moment in that model's history yeah, as well. Absolutely, and there's some great stories about that Montnery thing. Just driving around and around in circles, and you're not touching the brakes, you're just flat out incredibly boring so to liven up the boredom the, the pit crew uh, put out a card table on the track and sat there playing cards while Sterling Moss is driving past um, and then when they got bored with that they put a couple of cones out on the track and every time Sterling Moss went through they moved the cones in a bit so each lap they got a little bit nearer and nearer until he was touching them as he went past so that's the sort of stuff you do to stop stop getting bored at 100 miles an hour it's the sort of thing Russ Swift does on his stunt driving thing, isn't it? Yeah, although Russ Swift tends to do that on two wheels. <laughs> yeah. Our cars were all done on four wheels, I think, all the time, yes, yeah. And from a very uh, nice piece of history looking way back to that uh, circuit drive to something that's fairly modern, actually, with the ring taxi here as well. Uh, that's right. Uh, Jaguar have got a, a test site at the Nürburgring where they do generally do some real fast road testing. But also the Nürburgring's got its own sort of culture anyway. Um, and I think actually BMW started it doing t taxi rides. Uh, so Jaguar inevitably did the same. They started off in an XJR saloon, which we've got here, and it is liveried up as the ring taxi. And basically you paid, I think, 249 euros, strapped yourself in, in a full race harnet in a Recaro seat, and got driven around the track at lunatic speeds by a professional driver and eight minutes 30 seconds not too which, shabby which if anyone's <laughs> done the Nürburgring that is pretty quick that is pretty quick it has become a bit of a, uh, a sort of badge of honour with car manufacturers now, isn't it, to get the quickest uh, time round the ring. Unfortunately, it does make cars quite solid on suspensions, which is uh, one criticism uh, of it. But... It does, yeah, yeah. And interestingly enough, they retired the ring taxi and it came to the museum and they replaced it with what they called a race taxi, which is a souped-up F-type SVR. Um, and, amazingly enough, when they retired that, 
that came to the museum as well. So we've got a four-seater ring taxi and a two-seater ring taxi as well in our collection. Superb. And these cars out on track giving passenger rides today? Uh, yes, they are. The, uh, uh, sadly for the visitors here, but sensibly for us as a trust, our insurers wouldn't allow us to let Joe Public drive around the circuit. So we're just restricted to passenger rides. And yeah, that's, as you can see, that's some of what's going on now. Um, obviously they are parade laps, they're not racing laps, but at least it'll give everyone the experience of going out in one of these particular cars anyway. I'm sure you'll agree it was a fantastic spectacle to see all of those cars out on track during the Summer Jaguar Festival at Bista. A really welcome addition to the event this year. Now, talking of tracks and racing, there's no Tom Robinson on this episode. He's having a week off to go and consume his champagne from his big win at Castle Coombe just a few weeks ago. So he'll be back next week. But in the meantime, a specially extended Hall of Fame before David Marks next. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Well, on this week's Hall of Fame, we are recording this on the week leading up to the British Grand Prix 2021 at Silverstone, of course, where at last big crowds are allowed to return to Formula One, at least here in the UK. And so to mark that, we're inducting one of the most famous British championship winners. It is, of course, Nigel Mansell. And uh, Nigel comes from the shadow of the Malvern Hills, doesn't he, originally? He does indeed, yes. Nigel Ernest James Mansell, CBE. Uh, he was born on the 8th of August, 1953. You're quite right, Wayne. He hails from that part of the world. And he's a driver that, throughout my Formula One career, throughout the 80s and the 90s, almost into the 2000s, I had a great deal of toing and froing with. And somebody who I must say, I had great pleasure working with, he, our Nige, as he became known by the British fans, quite a complex character, but what a guy and what a racing driver. Supporting Nigel Mansell as a Formula One fan in the early 90s was a little bit like supporting England in Euro 2020, really. It was full of highs uh, and ultimately many times ended on a crushing low. But um, he had some stunning races throughout his career, some real memorable moments, some of those uh, fantastic dices even with his teammate Ricardo Patrese that stick in my mind. But it all began for him... Well, with nothing, didn't it? And he very much had to fund his own way into motorsport. Oh, he did indeed. In his early single-seater career, he, he took an enormous risk. Um, he and his lovely wife, Roseanne, who seemed to have been together forever as a couple. Um, obviously, at that time, they were a young couple starting out on life. Nigel was a budding young racing driver. He couldn't raise the money that he wanted to secure his drive. And therefore, he, he mortgaged his home to a level that even today, I think people would have found frightening. And he used that money, which brought him a short number of races where his talent shone through. And I think without that, that gutsy decision that he took in those early days, maybe we wouldn't have seen the Nigel Mansell that drove in Formula One for Lotus so successfully for Williams and Ferrari. And latterly, of course, that short spell that he had at McLaren. Well, it was gutsy in terms of raising the money and taking a risk. He left a very good career in engineering to follow the motorsport dream. But it was also gutsy because in those early days, he had some terrible crashes, a couple of which very nearly saw him never walk again, didn't they? Yes, he did. I mean, he suffered a broken neck, I think, in qualifying in, uh, was it in 77, I think? I know he was in a qualifying session at Brands and he suffered a broken neck, which, you know, for many, many people 
uh, as indeed it did for Philip Streff in the Ligier all those years ago, could have seen Nigel permanently disabled. But despite, doctors told him actually at one point he was extremely close apparently to uh, becoming a quadriplegic. Um, and that he would never even drive again, let alone walk again. So, yeah, he did. He just he discharged himself from hospital and returned to racing far too soon, really. But the one thing, you know, for our listeners that's really important, Nigel is a bull of a man in the nicest possible way. He, When he was a young man in racing and right the way through his Formula One career, immensely strong, very tough individual. And quite a lot of what you saw on the outside and, you know, the Nigel speeches after races and things, that wasn't the real Nigel. Underneath it all, there is an incredibly sharp commercial mind. There's an incredibly talented racing driver. And actually, when you get with him one-to-one or with the family, with Roseanne, an extremely nice guy. Huge talent on track uh, to back it all up as well. And one of my memories of Nigel Mansell was long after he'd retired from professional motorsport. It was actually, in fact, at Silverstone Classic when the JEC were displaying as normal on the infield there. And he took out one of the old late 70s Lotus 91s in the John mm. Player colours, of course. And he circulated mm. this Formula One car, aged as it was, and absolutely blew all of the lap records from racing that weekend. And uh, even the commentators, I remember hearing, just couldn't quite believe the num- the times and the numbers he was doing around that circuit, despite the fact it was supposed mm. to be an old car on a historic race weekend. And it was quite pertinent, really, because that is a precise facsimile of exactly how he ended up in Formula One. He was a wickedly quick test driver for Lotus, wasn't he? He was indeed, and in fact, you talked earlier about his early days from Formula 3, you know, not only did he have that accident that broke his neck, but he also got involved with Dave Price Racing, a name that will be familiar to many of our uh, listeners, Dave Price, an incredibly experienced race team guy. Um, but following, you know, he, he won at Silverstone, I think it was, but then he had a monstrous accident with Andrea de Cesaris, which again hospitalised him with a broken vertebrae. But the speed with which he came back from those accidents and also the speed on track that you refer to clearly was noticed then by Lotus, uh, Colin Chapman in those days, you know, a great talent spotter like the late Ken Tyrrell. And despite all the painkillers that Nigel was on, you know, he put in an amazing performance. And of course, there there he was, you know, driving alongside some of the great names like Mario Andretti, as well as Argentinian Carlos Schwarzman, who was going off to Williams. Um, Driving the Lotus 79, the seat eventually, I think, went to the late Elio De Angelis. But um, you're right in what you say, Mansell elected to become a test driver for that team. And he did some remarkable things in developing those brilliant cars that uh, Lotus are so rightly proud of. Well, it was that relationship he developed with Colin Chapman that really propelled him into Formula One. And it also, of course, made him a very wealthy man because it was Colin Chapman who persuaded him away from other forms of motorsport. And you can imagine a young and hungry Mansell at this point uh, wanting Mm. to do everything that was offered to him, including the 24 Hours of Le Mans and wanting Mm. to just about you know dip his toe in the water i guess of every form of motorsport there was but colin chapman offered him a deal that would change his life he made him a millionaire he put him in a formula one seat and that's really where it all began for nigel mansell wasn't it yeah it was i mean i i, I first met nigel in 84 1984 um in dallas uh, although i literally i was you know the rookie at williams on the sponsorship side and i was I was about to go off and join McLaren. My, my first stay at Williams was very short. And I remember walking down and seeing Nigel there in the blistering heat of Dallas in midsummer. 
and there's some famous clips uh, on, on YouTube of the end of that race where many of the drivers, we touched on it when we talked about Carlos Reutemann recently, suffered heat exhaustion and Nigel actually had to try and get out and push his car across the line and he collapsed and banged his head quite badly even though his helmet was on and was laid on the track and again it just showed you how tough he was and when he was in that Lotus and when he was there with Chapman and the rest of the team he put in some amazing performances and uh, you know you, you can't look at Nigel's career without realising how much it was started off by the belief that Colin Chapman had in him well of course that relationship as so often happened in formula one during that period it soured in the end and shortly after that dallas grand prix he was in portugal had a falling out with the man in charge the team principal in charge of lotus at the time uh, who uh, was very uncomplimentary about mansell's drive on that race mm. and that was kind of the end of it really and then in steps the following year frank williams who signs him up to drive alongside the legendary keki rosberg indeed what a pairing those two were as well <laughs> you know i mean rosberg again for many many years held the fastest qualifying lap at silverstone on the old circuit and they make you know they were they were tough guys to be racing side by side i mean they really really were very very strong because obviously you know in the 84 years Senna was going you know to join lotus and it, it the whole thing went through this this stratospheric change of some really strong drivers but Nigel found a natural home at Williams. Frank and Patrick always loved the racers. You know, you look at Carlos Reutemann, you look at Alan Jones, you look at guys of that ilk who are really quite tough characters in Keki. And it was the perfect place for him to go. And he started to shine, you know, very, very quickly. It was at this point as well, or shortly after, that the Red 5 arrives on the nose cone of his car. What's the story mm. behind that? I think I'm right in saying number five was the number that, you know, numbers in those days were much bigger and much more prominent on the cars and they were allocated by, by the FIA. And Nigel was allocated the number five, but Nigel was frequently, he was a tremendous golfer, a great lifelong friend of Greg Norman's. And uh, Nigel flew early on uh, with uh, the Red Arrows in part of a promotion. And of course, you know, one of their famous moves is the Red, red Five uh, leader, Red, sorry, the leader calls the red five and they break into this famous diamond. And they, I think it just came from the fact that Nigel just loved so much that, you know, number five, he had great success with it. And it became red five and it was inseparable. I think that, I think I'm right in saying his, his latest boat is red five, if I've got my information correct on that. And it stuck. And everybody, you know, as you say, the Mansell mania that developed throughout the 80s and then again when he came back in the 90s, uh, red five was just always on everybody's t-shirts amazing that uh despite all of that there were times where the relationship was on a knife edge really at williams even in those early days wasn't it and uh, there was one particular difficult point in mansell's career where of course williams were using honda engines and honda wanting their their man in the seat of course uh, to show off to japanese audiences were trying to edge him out in favor of nakajima at the time there were indeed. There was, there was a lot of pressure in, in the in the 1980s because Honda at that time, you know, did had the most superb engine, and they did push very very hard. You're quite right, and there there was some nudging, and I think there was talk about you know vastly increased amounts of money and things. And of course, money, as I've said before, is the raw material of motorsport, and it was a close run thing. But um, <laughs> thankfully, Nigel continued to do what he did and did the most fantastic job. Well, eventually, uh, the Honda engine would give way, of course, to the McLaren engine, the Judd V8 
Oh, and you can hear it now. Those cars were absolutely, I think, in my opinion, some of the best sounding Formula One cars in the history of the sport. Uh, and mm. they recently ran them on as a an anniversary event at one of the historic races recently. And just to hear that wailing noise of that Judd again, uh, incredible engines, incredibly high revving, flat plane crank V8s as well. And that was where mm. it all started to come together now for Nigel Mansell. He was now number one driver at Williams. Everyone was behind him. Murray Walker would talk about him non-stop during every single race when he was commentating. And things were all mm. starting to pave the way for a potential world championship here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the team were also incredibly behind Nigel because so many of the mechanics and the guys and the engineers had all come from, you know, many of us humble backgrounds, you know, and worked their way up throughout the sport. And Nigel had a great way of galvanising those people around him. And it, 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 it was just at the right place at the right time. You know, the British public adored him, as did indeed the Italians when he went to Ferrari. That's later in his career. But it was just a perfect time. And really, Nigel then started to turn in the results. He did some... Inc he had a very severe accident in 87 at Suzuka. He had a massive backward shunt and was helicoptered off to hospital for scans and things. But, you know, when he was on it, boy, was he on it. What I've never quite understood about the twist the story takes now is how he went from such a great drive at Williams and it was going fantastically he he was ill and missed a few races and Martin Brundle sat in for him uh, followed by mm. Schlesser as well uh, mm. and then all of a sudden he sort of pops out and he's now driving for Ferrari <laughs> well the 1887-88 seasons were fascinating because the, the Honda engine which had been so superb in the Williams was at that period when Patrick Head was running the Williams team while Frank uh, recuperated from his, his terrible road crash and Ron Dennis had convinced Honda that they should supply that superb engine to the McLaren team for 88 uh, with the combination of course of Senna and Prost that won 15 out of 16 races that year but the Judd itself I think although as you say beautiful sounding engine everything was right about it the only time it actually ever <laughs> really shone was when Jean-Louis Slesser punted Ayrton off at Monza and we failed to win all 16 races in one season but uh, Nigel actually got chicken pox you're right um, uh, he was advised to drive in the Hungarian Grand Prix which was a very bad mistake because you know it made him feel worse you're right then Martin Brundle came in and then Schlesser came in at that famous race where Santa, you know, got taken out at Monza. And I think Nigel was then looking at it and thinking to himself, so what's next? You know, where's the engine supplier deal? Il Leone, the lion, the Italian fans, you know, used to applaud him even in a Williams, let alone before he got into a Ferrari. And Marinello at that time wanted a superstar, you know, a guy who took the car by the scrap of the neck and shook it. And that was Nigel Mansell. And there he was, you know, in a Ferrari for the following year. Well, you said when you started this, induction of Nigel Mansell into the Hall of Fame that he was a very shrewd businessman as well as a very good driver and I think something had obviously clicked I think it happens a lot with drivers who have been to Ferrari there's something that happens to feed the ego over there in the Tifosi and sure enough it fed Nigel Mansell's ego because when it came to the point of him negotiating a return to Williams uh, he negotiated it as if he'd been winning championships for decades didn't he really the sort of rider <laughs> list started to get much longer 
Yeah, he did. He was very good at it as well. I mean, whilst he was at Ferrari, you know, that was part of the Bar- John Barnard period as well as technical director. And of course, you know, the the flappy paddle gearbox came in with the semi-automatic gearbox. Nigel was the first to race it. At the time, there was enormous controversy within the factory. Nigel was actually the last driver ever chosen by Enzo Ferrari, you know, prior to his death. And, you know, Nigel was very clever. He knew how to play one team off against the other. He can be exceptionally charming and very, very convincing. And basically what he did was he he used that strength. And I think because, again, Frank, going back to Frank Williams, Frank loves a racer. There he was looking at Nigel Mansell doing remarkable things in a Ferrari. And he thought, good, the boy's mature. Let's get him back into Williams, which he did and did very, very well indeed. And this is the era that I remember Nigel Mansell for the most, really. He was number one driver. Ricardo Patrese, though, was his challenging uh, partner at Williams during this time. Uh, I think it's fair to say it was a very uh, frictionful relationship between the two. Um, And then the amazing thing happens. uh, There was that iconic moment, of course, where he gives Ayrton Senna a lift at the British Grand Prix (laughs) in 91 at Silverstone. Um, Got told off by the stewards afterwards. But it was one of those really nice moments that you can't ever imagine happening in Formula One now. It's too clinical. But where two battling drivers who on the track hated each other just had that moment of humanity in front of the British audience. And it really endeared him to fans that moment, didn't it? It did indeed, and I said to her, I asked her once, I said, you know, did you think that was a really nice gesture, you know, with him stopping to pick you up? And he said, well, I did try and flag him down because he said it gave me the opportunity from where I was sitting on the left-hand side pod to look into the cockpit and see how much fuel the Williams had left. So he said, from my side, it saved me a walk back to the pits, but it was also an opportunity to get some insights into what the fuel consumption was like. So he wrote, once a racing driver, always a racing driver. But you're right, the, the fans loved it because that's the 91 season. They'd also had that incredible, you know, interlocked wheels at the bottom of the main strip pit straight at over 200 miles an hour at Barcelona with all the titanium sparks coming off both ends of the front, you know, wing end plates. And it became, it became a legendary battle between the two of them and the fans of course loved it particularly the Brits well he finished just behind Senna that year but the following year would be his year it was the year of course that he won the world championship the first British Mm. driver for well a generation to take home that trophy Mm. it was also the year he he, uh, overtook Jackie Stewart of course for the most wins for a British driver and he really was at the top of his game there there's absolutely no question about it at all Uh, he won Sports Personality of the uh, award again that year in 1992 for for his efforts but of course it was also a year of controversy when in front of a live television audience uh, with Frank unprepared to match the money that Nigel was asking for at the time which was the equivalent of sum of money that Ayrton Senna had been earning at McLaren Nigel announced on live television he was quitting Formula One as world champion and heading off to race in the IndyCar series for the Newman House team. Yeah, I remember it so well. It was a little bit like your favourite TV series suddenly ending on the best episode. You know, you'd waited your life for this moment and then suddenly he was gone and you would never see it again. At least that's how it felt as a fan at the time. No, and, and you've read the situation incredibly well because the team sponsors also had been waiting, you know, for this result. They'd invested very heavily in promoting Nigel throughout that and the previous season. And in fact, it was it was in a bizarre way why I went back to Williams in the October of 92 when Nigel was, you know, coming up to his last race. I had a conversation with Frank Williams, Patrick Head and a guy called John McDonald who used to run the Ram team, very close friend of Frank's. And 
Frank said to me, would you come back? And he said, we've got a job to do to stabilise our sponsorship portfolio. And at the time, you know, I wasn't particularly heavily engaged in anything else. And I took the challenge with both hands and absolutely loved it. And it involved a, a very tense winter over the 92 to 93 season, because not only in the eyes of the sponsors, in the eyes of the British public, had we got rid of our British world champion and sent him to, you know, our arch enemy, the IndyCar series, we'd replaced him with a Frenchman in Alan Prost. So yeah. you can imagine what a joyous winter that was. <laughs> yeah, but of course, he proved once again that uh, despite being... I guess in modern terms, quite an old driver by that point. He was nearly 40 mm. when he won the World Championship. And mm. I think that probably gives you some of the bargaining power because I guess to a driver, it would it would have been in his mind at that point that in a way he was on borrowed time, in a sense. He went, of course, over to IndyCar and, and blew them all away once again, didn't he? Mm, indeed. And in fact, when he was over there, I mean, as you say, blew him away indeed. He, he won the season's opening round at Surfers Paradise, but he actually was the first rookie to take pole position and win his first race. He started to really rack up the successes there, but he did have a big crash at Phoenix uh, International Parkway, and again, he injured his back, you know, and you think, how much more of this can, can he take? But he led and almost won the Indy 500, the legendary Indy 500. And, of course, he went on to be crowned the uh, IndyCar champion that year. Um, I think, the, am I right in saying he was the only driver to hold the Formula One and the car championship actually physically at the same time because of the way the two championships fell together? Mm. Um, but there he was, you know, and he was looking very strong in America. He had a big following. Texaco put enormous money into him. And, of course, the TV channels over here actually picked it up. And there was a Texaco-sponsored series about IndyCar which at the time I remember Bernie and several others gnashing their teeth because suddenly Nigel was making IndyCar popular across Europe. Well he'd made it popular across Europe he'd also made motorsport itself popular it felt to the nation at the time that for the last 10 years or so there had been a British driver worth supporting for the championship mm. win and this had the happy side effect of course that a lot of new drivers were inspired into taking up motorsport and then suddenly you started to see a lot of british drivers coming through a young david mm. coulthard arrived on the scene and the mm. son of a very famous previous champion uh, another british champion in many motorsport disciplines a former winner of le mans as well graham hill's son damon and mm. the british public had kind of taken their focus off nigel mansell by the time he returned back to formula one and was starting to watch these young hopefuls for the future but return he did yeah, we had a very successful uh, Williams when I said the Royal Way. At that time, I was still with Williams. We had a very successful 1993 with Proston Hill, although we did get stamped on very heavily at Donington in the wet by Senna, which is a very famous race that people will remember. But halfway through the 93 season, we, we were made aware that our Camel sponsorship was coming to an end, Camel cigarettes, and through various contacts, Rothmans were looking at Formula One, and we were able to then, of course, if we were successful in attracting Rothmans and the multi-million dollars that they had, we were capable of attracting Ayrton Senna. And of course, Frank had tested Ayrton in 82 at Silverstone, followed him all through his McLaren successes and his three world championships. And Damon and David, uh, David was our test driver, David Coulthard, 
Ayrton got into negotiations with us round about mid-June of 93, but he made it very, very clear from the very first conversation that he wouldn't have Alan Prost as his teammate. And as the year progressed up until when we signed Ayrton in the September of 93 for the 94 season, really we'd given no more thought to Nigel and our lineup for the following year was going to be, or as indeed as it was at the first three races, Ayrton Senna with Damon Hill and uh, David Coulthard as a test driver. So at that time, We'd all wish Nigel well, and he was successful in America. And we didn't give any more thought to it until that dreadful weekend in 1994, over the weekend of the last day of April and the first day of May, when uh, our lead driver, Ayrton Senna, died, which everybody knows about, and, of course, Roland Ratzenberger on the Saturday. So then Nigel came firmly back into play. Well, it's a moment in Formula One history that affected so many careers and lives, and Nigel Mansell's... Uh, being amongst them it kind of all faded away at Williams for him soon after that Williams ultimately opted for the young Scotsman David Coulthard and then Nigel Mansell found himself at McLaren and mm. I, I don't seem to really have much memory of him even racing for McLaren at the time such was their position on the grid they were they were sort of in the background it felt as a fan at the time um, and I mm. think probably Nigel Mansell felt that as well because weirdly he sort of dissolved from McLaren after the 95 season and went to British touring cars which was a surprise to everyone yeah. I think it was we should never underestimate what he did though for the Williams team in 94 I was I was heavily involved with Sir Frank and Bernie Eccleston and a number of people from Renault and lawyers in bringing Nigel back across the Atlantic for four races that he did for us and of course he came and he brought that that amazing respect that he had within the team helped rebuild Williams after the shattering events of Imola mm -hmm. and of course he went on and won the last race at Adelaide for us which was an absolute you know uh, bonus because we won the World Constructors and you're right you know I think we, we had an option on him for the 94 season but as again we got into monetary discussions and Frank being the way Frank has always been the option was never taken up and you're right he went off to McLaren it wasn't a great period there they they had the Peugeot engine program at the time which was struggling and as you said earlier Nigel was a, a, an older statesman almost 40 years of age he was a big man is a big man and he found the McLaren very much not to his liking and sadly uh, it just didn't work out at McLaren and he moved on he you're right he did a fantastic job in the Toka shootouts uh, when Alan Gale was running the Super Touring Series he had an enormous accident in that uh, um, Ford Mondeo which <laughs> found him you know on television for all the wrong reasons but he's continued he went on and did the Grand Prix Masters Series I think he won both the races that were in that uh, he almost went back and did some driving for Eddie Jordan at one point and of course he's raced at Le Mans with his two sons he's now heavily involved in his charities he's uh, been there as a steward at a number of the leading Grand Prix and Nigel Mansell continues to be without doubt one of the great heroes of uh, British motorsport still very much a driving force of the sport of course his son Leo is coming through the ranks as well last saw him drive well they hooked up with Hugh Chamberlain for uh, for a Le Mans Lo uh, a Lola in the LMP2 series uh, he then came back and drove a Ginetta Zytec in LMP2 I think that was probably around 2010 um, didn't have a fantastic race that time but it's always felt like Nigel Mansell has never really left motorsport alone and threw his son there teaming up on those LMP2 teams and especially that fantastic um, effort he did on Le Mans with Hugh Chamberlain 
Uh, he mm. just always seems to be around on the fringes, never never really disappearing, but there for his fans to give us just a glimpse of him now and then. And, of course, we often see him at Silverstone Classic racing some of those uh, amazing and iconic 70s and 80s Formula One cars. So a Absolutely. part of history, very much a part of history for motorsport, for Britain, and I'm getting the sense for you as well, Richard, in your career. Absolutely. Somebody I feel very, very privileged to have worked alongside. Um, a lot of time spent with him during those difficult negotiations of 94, but to bring him back and see him do what he did for Williams, the team, the British public, was amazing. And I think the most incredible thing was he ended up ending his career almost with another big accident at Le Mans. And during his recovery, he decided to take up the hobby of learning magic. And in fact, I don't know how many people know this, but Nigel is an incredible magician. And he's actually become a member of the magic circle and now performs magic tricks for audiences around the world. Amazing. Incredible. Lives on the Isle of Man now as well. Enjoys his golf and sells Mitsubishis out of a dealership as well, weirdly. Um, but uh, a very good inductee into our Hall of Fame here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast on the week of the British Grand Prix at Silverstone 2021. Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. So keep yourself comfortable, take a seat because joining me now, give him a big hand, is the JEC technical advisor, David Marks. Hello there, thank you. Well, uh, you've been locked away in your workshop for about 18 months, unable to get out. It's nice to be out amongst the cars again, isn't it? It is. It's uh, very nice and quite unusual, almost a bit of a unique experience, but it is great and it's been a fantastic event, this. There's no doubt at all. Absolutely. No Absolutely. I've got to ask you firstly about how you got here. I know there was a, a special cavalcade of XJ40s down the motorway to get here, so explain the three cars that you've brought. Right, well, amongst all the other anniversaries this year, it's um, 35 years since the XJ40 was launched, a particular passion of mine. And um, I'm very fortunate that I own three somewhat unusual ones, the D38 BRW, the original, the only known original press car that's still surviving, um, the estate XJ40 that's resurfaced after many years of lying in hibernation, which I acquired and got ready to go on the road just in time for lockdown last year. So it's probably good fun driving that one around now. And um, a V12 6-litre XJ40 as well. And wow. it was a good sight seeing all three of those coming down in convoy this morning, and good fun as well. One of the cars that you have brought to shows and events before, and I'm a huge fan of, is what I call Jaguar's first proper shooting brake, uh, which is the XJ40 Estate. Um, a very special car, but representative of a thing of what the XJ40 could have been had they developed it yet further. It must be a real privilege to have that in the collection as well. Well, yes, you've got to remember that car was, was coach-built as a private enterprise, unlike Jaguar's own design exercise. Um, but, you know, we go back to Sir John Egan's very interesting talk this morning. I think it's fair to say that Jaguar probably had very much more things on their mind they're looking at trying to develop or introduce a shooting brake or an estate car, call it what you will, at a time when perhaps they felt the market wasn't really there for it with, with what they were aiming at. Um, but the, the Humberston estate, the green one that I have, 
um, which is one of three that were made. It, it's a very interesting exercise, and um, certainly there were discussions with Jaguar about that car when it was done. I've had that from a couple of people that was at Hatfield's Jaguar, where it was, um, it was kept and stored for the owner, John Williams, at the time. Interesting to hear Sir John Egan talking earlier about the fact that when he was designing that car with his team, he got Sir William Lyons in to hear his opinion of the car, and it is often touted as the last Jaguar that Sir William Lyons had a hand in. That gives it real credibility, doesn't it? It does completely. I mean, it's unfortunately the XJ40 is a very underrated car. And I think much as the XJS was considered slightly sideways as it had to succeed the E-Type, so the same with the XJ40 with the angular lines. So the XJ40 with the angular lines going on from the Series 3. Um, and again, the, it did have that input from both people like um, Sir William Lyons and Norman Dewis as well, although he retired before the car was actually launched in the end. And the comments Sir John made this morning that he considered canning the project as it was because of the changes in the development procedures of a motor car. And you could say that it, it was Sir William Lyons who ensured that car came into fruition, without a doubt. They are a, a, a moment in time, really, aren't they, where Jaguar really had a design change. Uh, and I suppose when you look back at the, the sort of Series 3 XJ6 with its sort of curvy lines, the DNA from right the way back to the 420Gs and the Mark 10s is clear. It was a real change then to put square headlights in, for example. But underneath, it is still very much a Jaguar, isn't it? And it still has that occasion about it when you drive one. It's absolutely a Jaguar. Um, the way in which it was designed with the, with the suspension, the steering, and the whole body structure under the auspice of Jim Randall to give a ride quality and a poison handling on the road that is frankly superior to the XJ Series 1, 2, and 3. And the rear suspension carried on all the way through to 2006 in the back of the XK8. So it's a very long-lived suspension system in that car. And as far as the interior goes, with the improvements in air conditioning, which made a stunning change for one that worked and could work reliably, and the seating in an XJ40 is perhaps some of the most comfortable that you'll come across in, in a motor car, not just a Jaguar, but in anything at all. Um, they really are quite incredible as a package, without a doubt. It amazes me that if you talk to some cynical motoring journalist now about the Jaguar XJ40, they'll say, oh, they rust, oh, they always break down, oh, they were part of Jaguar's history that we'd rather forget. I mean, it's utter rubbish, really, isn't it, frankly? Because if you look back at the period road tests on those cars, they were shining. If you look back at some of... Quentin Wilson did a fantastic review of one um, when they were some years on into the mid-90s of what it was like to buy a second-hand one and they were doing even in the 90s starship mileage without any problems. It is one of those examples of the British motor industry getting a good kicking for no real reason, isn't it? They're actually fantastic, reliable cars to drive. They are. Mechanically, they, would, um, they were intergalactic. You could do five, six, 700,000 miles, no problem. And there are still some cars running around now as daily drivers of that order of mileage as well. Um, the bodies actually lasted remarkably well. We were seeing three-year-old Series 3 XJs with substantial corrosion back in the early 90s. But it really took until the late 90s before the XJ40 started to corrode badly. Um, but it was a perfect storm then. that The cars were corroding, the values were falling. We had that crash at the time as well. And it, it all signed, uh, it was its nadir for the car at that moment in time, unfortunately. But you get a good one, and it's very hard to criticize indeed. 
And, you know, you can look at it with rose-tinted spectacles if you want to, but even the electronics, which are universally panned or condemned as being unreliable, it was a classic case again that the development that came through at engineering level, the ability to repair these things was never actually fully taught to those in the workshops. And that was not just a, a Jaguar problem or even a British motor industry problem, but the motor industry worldwide is littered with cars that have failed because the, the mechanics and the electrical staff were not trained how to fix those cars, be it Citroen or Ford or Ferrari or whatever it was, they were the problems with those things. But being a car of the 80s and the mid-90s, the electronics these days are simple enough, and they can be repaired quite easily. Unlike modern-day electronics, where if you have a wholesale problem, it becomes just that, a wholesale problem to deal with. And there are many stories of cars lying in garages not so easily repaired because of the sheer complexity. But a few capacitors, a few cadences, and a transistor, and you're back off and running again. And of course you are a specialist in doing just that, repairing those solid state electrics. And they're, they're very modular, aren't they? If, if something goes down, there's a little black box that looks after just that job. No communications um, networks or anything like that with them, and it really is quite easy. I remember when I started the garage that the very first car we had in was a Series 3 XJ12 to deal with an engine issue with it. Second car that came through the door was an XJ43.6 and it kind of set the tone because he came in and I just started, I was as green as grass and then some. He said, it needs a service David and I, you know, can you check a vibration or something? And oh by the way, there's something not quite right with the lights. And that was my introduction to the, the bulb fail module but luckily at the time there were a a group of people long before the internet um, and anything like that, or computers even, in the general public, shall we say, um, we just talked and people figured these things out. And I was able to give other people knowledge of things I'd worked out, but frankly, a lot of stuff I learned was on extensions on the basis of what people gave me at the time as well, because we were all finding these things out at the time on these cars. It was a, a good and interesting time, because many specialists at the time outside the dealer network didn't want to work on these newfangled fuel-injected cars. There were still plenty of carburetted cars being used as everyday cars. Many people knew about the, the V12 and the fuel injection, comfortable with that. But the 40 when it came out, no, many people didn't want to look at those things at all. From a club point of view, the Jaguar XJ40 is really important, and I'll tell you why. When I was in my early 20s, it was the only Jaguar I could afford. I bought my first XJ40 for £735 off of eBay. Had it not been for that car, had it not been so easy to access the Jaguar lifestyle through the XJ40, I probably wouldn't be sat here now. I certainly wouldn't have been able to have the succession of Jaguars that I then later had or enjoy the Jaguar Enthusiast Club and all of the tours and events and the special activities and the friendship that we have. And that's the great thing about, even now, prices are going up very quickly and if you're looking for a car to invest in, tip is the XJ40, I would say. But for a long time, they have been a fantastic entry level into the Jaguar world, but one that is reliable to use as an everyday car. Oh, absolutely. Um, even now, you'll get a good XJ40 for anywhere between three and a half and six thousand pounds. Um, you can get better ones for more, but you can buy a good car for that. Um, there's a very, very enthusiastic group of people interested in these, a number of which are all here today. Uh, we have Paul Keating with his XJ40 register, has a record of some uh, 20 odd, 110,000 cars out of the 208,000 he's traced and has got an encyclopedic knowledge of, of many of the cars that are actually around in the real world today. 
Uh, there's a very good knowledge base out there. There are people like Naki who can supply parts. You know, I'm on the end of a phone as, as through the JEC and this, that, and the other. And it's such a usable car. It really is. It's, it's distinctive on the road now. The convoy we were in today, we were watching each car driving down the road in front, behind, in mirrors. It really stands out as something individual on the road. And yet it's a car that's capable of the speed limit in any country, be it 70 in this country, or even doing, frankly, 120 in Germany, if you so desire it. And they have the safety principles in them. Almost all of them have ABS. Only the very first of them had it as an option. You could delete the ABS if you wanted to. And the later ones from 93 have airbags as well. Yeah. Um, they are environmentally efficient, going on to Kevin's talk about that. A is they're built, so the cost in having them has been created. They have a catalyst system on many of them now, so the exhaust emissions and what have you are fine. And even the early engines were very efficient. And frankly, half of them would pass a catalyst test anyway if they were running correctly. And everything can be fixed with a decent toolkit. So if you're an enthusiast and a mechanic, mechanically there's nothing to scare you away from an XJ40 at all. And if you can buy one and take care to buy one with, with a reasonable bodywork, you've got a car that will last you for a long, 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 long time. Let's talk about some buying tips then. Uh, I know from my experience, the bulkheads like to rust. There's a lot of sponge in between the two layers of the bulkhead that collects water if ever it gets damp and, and they, they tend to rot out from that point. There's top tip for you. What others are there, uh, David, that you can help us with? And also, I'm gonna ask you, should I avoid a 2.9 litre digital dash or are they okay really? Second question first. Um, the 2.9 was introduced to meet tax markets in various countries. Uh, the one that springs to mind is France that had anything above three litres would have um, a huge tax placed upon the car. And I think New Zealand was another place that myself and Paul were talking about last night. Uh, the 2.9 was never the quickest thing off the, off the block, there's no two ways about it. But properly maintained and correctly set up, it was still brisk enough. And if you had a 2.9 manual, it's quite a sporty car, because it weighs a little bit less, again, engine-wise, than the 3.6. So you've got a little bit less weight again up front and what have you. And throwing it round town, it can be quite good fun. And again, to crib something off Kevin beforehand, the idea of having all that fun at 35 miles an hour, it's, it's there, albeit slightly faster than that, in a 2.9. Um, they did have reliability problems, again, largely because people wouldn't treat them right, and that's the problem there. But a 2.9 is a fairly rare car to find these days, and you'll, you'll find a 3.6 far more easily than a 2.9. As far as the digital dashboard goes, again, it had a reputation for unreliability, but was always easily fixed. It was only solder joints behind there. We made very good money out of repairing those back <laughs> in the day. I mean, the 40 set my business up in many ways, it has to be said, a lot of times through these electronic repairs. Um, but I've never heard, I've never personally come across a dashboard that has failed full stop, which for a piece of 1980s electronics with independent liquid crystal displays across separate boards, it just shows how good the basic engineering was and, and the effort that, that Jim Randall put into the design of the, all the aspects of the car, coupled with, of course, Sir John Egan's input on quality control and getting the suppliers to tow the line as well. Um, it is all repairable and it's all doable. The digital dash doesn't put anybody off and it has that real 80s charm, I have to say. There is something about driving a, a digital dash car with the LCDs there and in some ways it's going full circle because some of the gauges on even the modern computerized dashes now still have these bar graphs going across. You know, that you could, 
they won't have taken a cue from that, but you can imagine in your mind as you're driving down that that's where it all came from. Absolutely. And I guess the, the key tip from all of that then is to find one with the best bodywork that you can. Yes, that is it. And unfortunately, um, as I said already, that by about the end of the um, um, beginning, about the end of the 1990s, um, they were starting to corrode out, unfortunately. And, um, but the ones that have survived on the whole are the survivors. But you do have to be careful. The front wings are very hard to find if you've got a badly corroded front wing. So finding one of those is difficult, and they do have a value. <coughs> Excuse me. But the, the front of the sills can corrode quite badly, and also the tow board underneath that whole front tow board and, and bottom bulkhead area. But otherwise, largely, it's what you see is what there is. If the real wheel arches are corroded, then they are. And if, if they're not, they're not. Um, it's best to lift the carpets and make sure the floor pans where they run along the length of the sills are in good order as well, because that was a common area at the time. Um, but yeah, the bulkhead is the, is the worst part, because if it's gone badly, it's dashboard out and engine out to, to deal with all of that, that's for sure. The engines are bulletproof. Uh, occasionally, you'll have a bit of smoke on startup where the um, oil control uh, uh, seals on those go go hard. Basically, yes, it's just basically the valve. The valve stem seals just go hard on them. Um, it's usually four liters are more prone to that than anything else. It has to be said. Um, but yeah, the engines, the gearboxes, unburstable. The diffs were a weak point, but relatively well, easy to, to rebuild with with a moderate cost, shall we say? Uh, and many parts mechanically are still fairly freely available. And fairly easy to find on a test drive if you are buying one. Uh, get the person who is selling you the car to drive the car, and you sit on the back seat. And if you hear a whining coming from between your legs, it's probably going to be a diff job. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> but it. Quite often, actually, it's just the bushes that have gone, isn't it? And you can hear. Well, the yes. If, if the rear suspension bushes fail, then the, the the cage goes metal to metal contact with the body, and that transmits the noise more 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 quickly as more easily as well. But even when the discs get noisy, they don't fail. I've never known a diff actually fail, I have to say. They just get noisier and noisier. That's why they use them in drag cars quite often, <laughs> of course. I'm going to ask you about one of your highlights of XJ40 ownership and, and one of your highlights in the JEC. And I know it was north of the border in Scotland where you got those luminaries from the XJ40's story together to reenact the launch. I mean, I was merely um, an attendee at that. Again, it was the likes of Paul Keating and John Radcliffe and Naki, etc., that organised that. But back in 2016, we celebrated 30 years of the XJ40. Um, and we held that celebration at Dunkeld House Hotel, where the original launch took place back in, um, back in, 2000, uh, back in 1986. And amongst very many people who were there were, were numerous members of um, Jaguar, who at the time were responsible for the development of the car and the launch of the car. And um, there was Peter Taylor there, part of the engineering um, background to it. And of course, we had Jim Randall, um, regrettably passed away now, unfortunately, no longer with us, and Howard, who was the engineering director of Jaguar and responsible for that car, and Howard Hunt, who was responsible for looking after all the press fleet as far as his job. And um, we had a traditional cavalcade of cars around, and um, I was asked if I would um, chauffeur Jim Randall around in that car, to which I obviously said yes. Somewhat nerve wracking experience, it has to be said. And he was not the most outward going of persons, and in that sort of situation, neither am I. <laughs> and as, as Sue, my girlfriend, who was sat in the back of that stage, will testify, there was several minutes of silence, shall we say, before we plucked up the courage <laughs> to speak to each other. Um, but one of the very first things that he said 
much less than seven minutes away. We'd barely got moving in the car, and it was a sentiment that Howard Hunt echoed previously when he drove the car with me before breakfast that morning. And, and Jim Randall picked up on it literally within 100 yards of how good and how refined the whole car was as a drive. Noise, vibration, harmonics, poise, bump absorption on the road, because the Dunkel driveway was speed bumps and bumps and everything else like this. And it, it, probably 25 years since either he or Howard had driven an XJ40 up until that point and completely forgotten about it and how they were. And, and he was quite scathing of his XF that he had at the time in compared to that and said to me and a number of others, because he drove a couple of other cars as well, um, that really the whole trend in, in modern motoring for the harder suspensions and narrower tyres means you lose this quality of ride which the XJ40 has. Absolutely. It's... Uh modern tyres, it's uh, short tyre walls, it's all of the other things that have come into car design now that has changed them. So uh, definitely a late 80s, early 90s Jaguar. If you want to feel the true Jaguar experience is one of the best cars uh, to buy. Um, 35 years ago the XJ40 was launched, still a very important car within the Jaguar Enthusiast Club today. Great to have one of our technical gurus here on the stage with me as well here at the Summer Jaguar Festival. And if you're a JEC member and you've got any problems with your car this is the man to talk to. He's here for you. You can access him by contacting uh, through the magazine Jaguar Enthusiast, which of course lands with you every month, and uh, David will answer all of your questions. One of the many perks of being a JC member. Get access to you, David. But it's been great to have you here on the stage. Oh, thank you, Wayne, for that as well. It's been great. Thank you. Brilliant stuff. Technical guru, David Marks. Give him a big hand. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.